Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is back to business in Ottawa today. House of Commons returning to work after the Christmas break. So let's find out what's on the agenda. Joining us now is David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. Yeah, there's uh, it's 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 going to be busy, of course. I mean, vaccines is going to be number one on the I think the hit chart when we have our first question period this afternoon, and the Prime Minister is expected to be in uh, in the House of Commons for question period. So, uh, vaccine, vaccine delivery. This is the week you, you've probably been uh, letting people know, Simi, that mm-hmm. um, Pfizer is delivering zero vaccines yeah. to Canada. Um, they're doing this refit. So uh, the opposition's going to be hot on that. Also, there is some new legislation that will be tabled today uh, that fixes a loophole in the Canada Sickness Recovery Benefit. And this is the benefit that is available to workers who do not have a paid sick leave program. So if you need to be off work because you're not feeling well or because you were in close contact with someone who had COVID, you should not go to work. But for those people who have to go to work because they can't afford not to, this benefit pays $500 a week. Uh, maximum of two weeks in any given year. But what we found over the holidays was travelers were coming back to Canada, doing their mandatory two-week quarantine, and claiming this benefit for their quarantine. And the government says, that's not what it's for. You travel, you quarantine on your own dime. Uh, this benefit is really just for those workers who are sick and ha- and don't have sick leave. So that's uh, that's some legislation we'll hmm. see today. I, I think that'll be a pretty quick uh, passage through Parliament, but a lot of yakking about vaccines. Right. Would you say, David, there's more for the opposition to work with during this session than perhaps there was in the fall session in terms of criticism towards the government's approach to COVID-19? Well, to the extent that the vaccine uh, distribution program is not proceeding as quickly as it is in other countries, yes. Um, but still, I mean, we're going to hear from we're going to hear from Aaron O'Toole, the opposition leader, uh, very shortly. Uh, Jugmeet Singh, the NDP leader, is going to speak, and you're going to hear some. Everybody's going to be talking about their own themes of COVID, vaccines, etc., recovery. Uh, the NDP in the fall session uh, believes that they had a pretty strong role in making some of these benefits richer, the sickness recovery benefit I mentioned, uh, and so on. And so, you know, they'll be pushing the government for more support for Canadians, and uh, I think the. Opposition will be point, or the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois really probably pointing out, you know, the some of the weak spots in terms of the government's management on vaccines. Will there be discussion? Do you think as well about, like, say, Keystone XL, perhaps the relationship with the new Biden administration? Uh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, Keystone probably will come up from the Conservatives. Of course, the Prime Minister and the new President had a t- telephone call Friday 
call went well, everybody said. I mean, the, the two men do get along personally. It is a big day, though, for Canada and a lot of America's biggest trading partners. And that's because today uh, President Biden is going to announce his version of Buy America. Trump had one of these, and so did Biden. And in this sense, you know, Biden and Trump uh, may, may be both a threat to Canada because a lot of Canadian firms sell aluminum, steel, manufactured items to the U.S. government. The U.S. government is a big buyer of things. And if the Biden administration says, no, we're only going to buy America, um, that's a problem for Canada. And that did come up on the call on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, all we got from Biden was we're, we'll keep Canada in mind when we announce these deals. But that, uh, perhaps more than Keystone, believe it or not, uh, could have a much bigger negative impact if Canadian firms are frozen out of U.S. government procurement contracts. Yeah, no kidding. All right, David, thank you for the preview. Okay, thanks, Amy. Cheers. Appreciate your time. That's David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. It is back to business in Ottawa today. The House of Commons is returning to work after their Christmas break, and there is a lot on the agenda, as David mentioned there. Top of the list is probably, I'm guessing, as David also mentioned, a criticism from the opposition from all the parties to the government about these delays in the COVID-19 vaccine roll-up plan. The fact that we're not even getting any this week from Pfizer, for instance. And also, you know, where are the approvals for the other vaccines? That AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine has been approved for use in the UK. Uh, we, you know, we haven't heard about that. We know there's two vaccines approved here in Canada, but clearly more to come. So it's going to be a lively day in Ottawa. And of course, we will have all of that for you. This is Mornings with Simi. Remember all that discussion we had last week about closing our borders in BC? Well, Premier John Horgan shut that down last week, right? And it was all in an effort to see what we could do to hopefully keep down the numbers of COVID-19 that we have in this province. Meanwhile, And this is the case that everybody cites, right? Let's take a look at what's going on over in Atlantic Canada. Researchers there are attributing their low number of cases in that area to that bubble that they put up. I mean, at one point, they even had, you know, conservation officers on a bridge between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia turning people around if they didn't have to go into that next province. To talk about how they handled this, how they pulled it off. Joining us now is Susan Kirkland, professor in the Department of Community Health and Epidemiology at Dalhousie University. Susan, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. So when was the decision made to try to pull off this Atlantic bubble? And what does it actually look like? Um, well, it's looked, <laughs> it's changed shape numerous times. Um, but initially, it was um, just a restriction across borders. Um, and it was that you couldn't travel across a border without um, uh, going into quarantine for 14 days. And then at some point, um, we decided that the four Atlantic provinces were uh, uh, managing equally well, had very low rates of, of COVID. And so we formed the Atlantic bubble, which meant that you could flow back and forth between the four Atlantic provinces without having to self-isolate. But if you were if you were coming in from outside of one of those four provinces, you would have to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, and and did, that, did that change things then when that happened? Um, well, it, I mean, things have changed. It's been somewhat fluid. So um, at, at one point, the bubble, you know, separated when 
when both Nova Scotia and New Brunswick started to get high rates again, and um, we've we've remained as individual provinces since then. So but it has yeah. been very effective. It has been effective, and we've been watching from other parts of the country, right, and the low numbers there, and we think, well, that's pretty impressive. But why do you think it worked there, and it can't really work in, you know, a place like BC or Alberta? Yeah, well, first of all, it's not the only thing that we've done that works, (laughs) and um, I think that's important to acknowledge as well. Um, But the reality of it is, is that we implemented it when we had very, very low rates. And so we had very little community spread at that point in time. And so it was, you know, it's, it's easy to track people. Um, it was, we developed a system where people had to uh, register and then they would get an email every 14 days and they would have to declare that they were abiding by the, the, the regulations. Um, and they were followed in that way. Um, but the, but there are other things that have gone on as well that that make it work. But but coming back to the point that I was making is that you know if if the rates are really low and you're only having to follow up a, a, a small number of people, it can be highly effective. It's much much harder when the rates or the the case numbers are much much higher. It's it's. Also, you know, we're lucky in terms of a number of things, but one of them is size, uh, population density, and the fact that, you know, many of the Atlantic provinces are almost islands. Now, New Brunswick doesn't qualify quite so much, but, you know, certainly PEI and uh, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. So what about the attitude towards, you know, keeping these restrictions in place, Susan? How helpful has the population been? Well, this is the other thing that I think has been quite remarkable. So, again, it comes down to not just one thing, but I think that there's three factors that have been very successful in the Atlantic region. First is that we've had very strong um, public health uh, direction. Uh, We've had a government that's been willing to take that direction and give out the messaging. And then we've had a population that's willing to respond and comply with the messaging. So I think it's really key that, um, that, that, that the Nova Scotia population and, and the Atlantic population in general has been very, very responsive and taken it very seriously. And, you know, I, I, uh, as a case in point, I think back to July when we implement, implemented a mandatory mask program in Nova Scotia. And at that time, there were very few cases of COVID in the province at that particular time. Um, but it was also at the time when, you know, the Atlantic bubble was going to come into effect. And, and people were, were and remain remarkably compliant to that, to that masking rule. You know, sometimes I think it helps because, because we're a small province, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because many people, even if they live in you know, the far reaches of the province do come to, to Halifax or, or HRM. Um, one thing that has been nice is that, by and large, we've given the same message right the way across the province. And although it sometimes seems like that's overkill, it makes it a lot easier for people to comprehend. They don't start questioning, well, why this here and not that there? Um, it's, it's just easier to give the message 
we haven't done that exclusively. Like there was a there was a time when we had um, an outbreak in in central Halifax or central Nova Scotia, which is Halifax and Hence County, and we restricted. Uh, we had restrictions that were limited to those two areas, but by and large, it's been a provincial-wide response. Right, and so the, as you said, though, the, one of the most important things is an understanding among the population that, listen, we can't allow this thing to get overrun. It's not like there's endless amounts of services in Atlantic Canada. Well, that's entirely the point, and I think that people really understand that. And that's why we really did act early and act fast is and, and acted very conservatively in the first wave and the second wave. Uh, because we know that we don't have capacity to deal with a surge or to deal with um, really high numbers. You know, we don't have the, the capacity in terms of public health to do the, the contact tracing. We don't have the capacity in terms of um, uh, hospital beds and ICUs. Um, and so we really understand that we can't afford to let it get out of control. And, you know, I think that we trial and errored a number of things in the first wave, and we understood a little bit more in the second wave what would be effective and what wouldn't, um, and have have been pretty, pretty hard-nosed about um, yeah. the restrictions that we put in place. But... You know, as we've seen, it works. And I think there's a certain amount of pride in the population as well, knowing that they played their part to make it work. And so there's just this added incentive to keep making it work, I think. Oh, I think that's so true. That's been a, a huge help to that as well. Susan, thank you for your time this morning. You're very welcome. Susan Kirkland is a professor in the Department of Community Health and Epidemiology at Dalhousie University, talking about the success of the, you know, so-called Atlantic bubble. So much of that, as Susan has pointed out, is because the population embraced it and they knew this was going to help them and they are proud of keeping their numbers low and that has helped them pull that off. Uh, Even in the second wave, like, yes, numbers have gone up, but they are still keeping things under control there. This is Mornings with Simi. Throughout this pandemic, we have been checking in periodically with the impact on the community of Point Roberts. And the community there has really had a tough time with this. But there may be hope now, and they're hoping that that comes in the form of the new president, Joe Biden. So let's check in now with Brian Calder, who's the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Simi. Now, Brian, tell me about yeah. this executive order that President Biden signed that you think might be helpful. Well, he's ordered his five cabinet ministers, uh, Secretary of State, Health and Human Resources, Homeland Security, Transportation, and the Center of Disease Control, given them 14 days to have on his desk uh, a new edict on how to run the Mexican border and the Canadian border, how to run them, how they should operate. Uh, and he wants it, like I say, within 14 days. So when we first heard that last Thursday, immediately put a uh, communique together for him from Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce to consider our absolutely and totally unique in North America situation while they're doing their deliberation. So I double registered mail so I could track it and prove it that we had done it and got it out last Thursday. They say on the tracking, it'll be there Tuesday, tomorrow morning on their desks. So 
will be in the game, whether they pay attention to us and to what extent. Obviously, I don't know that, but we're trying. Now, is this something that you've also brought up perhaps with the governor of Washington State, hoping they'll lobby for you too? Well, we've we've been in on to them for seven, eight months, and we're now starting to uh, uh, get that uh, <laughs> a panger, I guess you'd call it, a pandemic anger, having been locked down for uh, nine months, and it's like it's like we're being treated as criminals, and we haven't committed any crime. I mean, we're harmless here. We're the safest uh, place in North America, both from COVID standpoint. And from a crime standpoint, because we've got a guarded, gated community with armed guards run by the government. I mean, it doesn't get any safer than that. And so why are we being bullied and isolated? I mean, we drive into for a doctor's appointment into Bellingham. We can't believe it. I mean, it's like a normal world out there compared to us. We know it's not normal out there. We no. mask up and all the rest of the protocol. But. It, to us, it seems normal because it, we aren't moving here, period. So who is allowed at this point, Brian, to transit through Canada to get to Washington State? Well, being dual, half of us in Point Roberts are dual citizens, Canadian and U.S. So they cannot really prevent us, but they can make us 14-day quarantine uh, if you're Canadian. Uh, Americans, no, you don't go unless if you've got a medical emergency and you can prove it in writing by a doctor's uh, note back to you, email and print it and hand it on the border. They'll let you go through Canada to Bellingham, but not into Canada. And that gets to such a ridiculous point that one person here um, has a, a dog that has a bad back and it atrophying and needs medical attention. He always went for 10 years to the vet in Ladner. Nope, can't do that anymore. So the vet in Ladner says the only other one I'm going to recommend to you in the U.S. is in Seattle. So they have to take the dog down Aww. to Seattle have the back operation, bring it back. I mean, the, the other vet's two miles away, and he's, they've been going to him for 10 years. What's the threat? Brian, Where? when do you think you might hear something? You're pinning a lot of hopes on this executive order. When are you hoping to see some results of this? Well, we've run out of options, so we just keep moving up the ladder because we're not being paid attention. I mean, you know, we're 800 people. I mean, we're a subdivision to some place in Ladner or Surrey or whatever. So um, we're hoping that uh, we'll get a response out of the report. If it, in fact, gets produced in 14 days, we should have a a reflection of what's in it in 15 days. All right. Well, you know what? We'll talk to you then and find out what happened. Brian, thank you. We appreciate your follow-up. Thank you very much. Brian Calder, president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce, hoping that a change in administration in Washington, D.C. will help them in this little corner of the world of Point Roberts. And they said they need some kind of exception. They need some help from their federal government here because they haven't gotten any from the Canadian government on this front. This is Mornings with Simi. And we know that Indigenous culture often faces an uphill battle when it comes to their traditions and getting recognized for that. But new technology is actually able to provide a much bigger outlet for Indigenous artists. We wanted to talk about a really interesting new project called the Apocrypha Chronicles. Joining us now is Jessica Schnack, a Métis and Canadian writer. Jessica, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me about this podcast. 
Yeah, so the Apocrypha Chronicles uh, is a brand new podcast from Renaissance Opera, and it uh, combines science fiction and imagined futures, as well as documentary podcast. And uh, we have our imagined future, but we also have been able to uh, collect and create commissions to create a digital time capsule from our current moment right now. Really? So what would that look like? How do you even start something like that? Yeah, I mean, how do you start? Well, it started uh, with uh, Debbie Wong creating an opportunity out of, um, you know, the pandemic last March. We were set to have uh, Indie Fest, which was going to be a live festival of art. And obviously, when the pandemic happened, we had to change plans. And um, it, it became an opportunity to um, look at this this podcast, this story idea. Um, and I was really honored to come on board uh, and ended up coming on board as a writer. And we spent a, basically all of last year working on uh, the ideas for this, the process of how we were going to create it. And I think um, in wanting to create a hopeful future, um, we have a really diverse team. What utopia or what a hopeful future looks like is different for everyone. I think in some ways it's a lot easier to write about a dystopia. Um, so we took a lot of time in thinking about that and, and ultimately decided that in part of uh, imagining the futures, we would reach out to a, a diverse uh, group of artists, including um, many Indigenous artists, and give them the opportunity to create work around what uh, they want to send into the future. Yeah, what, what does some of that work look like? So there's a, an online uh, digital time capsule uh, that's available in virtual reality right now that you can view. And um, that is uh, been sent to the future and is being discovered at, through the Apocrypha Chronicles um, weekly. So there's a podcast. Um, the first uh, portion of it, the first episode is out and now it's available and uh, largely deals with um, uh, documentary uh, moments of and responding to the initial onset of the pandemic. Right. Have, well, um, of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was also thinking, too, what a cool project this is, because you're looking back at this time from 150 years in the future. Does that change, do you think, how you look at today when you're thinking, is this going to be important 150 years from now? Absolutely. I mean, especially because right now our ability to gather, um, you know, has been so severely compromised and uh, being outside of our communities in that way, I think, uh, really highlights just how important that is. So, yeah, certainly looking looking forward into the future, even my own personal future, you know, how, how these moments um, are experienced and how they how I will want to experience moments in the future based on, on what's happening right now, absolutely. Right. So how has that traditional kind of oral storytelling of Indigenous cultures been woven into this? Yeah, so, um, I mean, resurgence and resilience is nothing new to Indigenous people, and I'm honoured that we were able to have uh, artists like Bob Geyser Rice, uh, Jessica McMahon, uh, Margaret Grenier of the Dancers of Dama Hamid create works um, that, that spoke to them whether it's a song, whether it's uh, a story, uh, whether it's uh, a, a composition, whether it's a poem. Uh, we have uh, artist River Blondenburg as well has contributed. Um, these things, giving, giving them the opportunity to weave them through the story uh, is a way to imagine a future that doesn't just erase Indigenous people. That was really important to us. Uh, and a way for them to bring each of their individual nations uh, and to create their own work around that. Okay, so how long is this expected to continue on for? Like, how many episodes will there be? Uh, we have six episodes uh, in this first season here. New episodes are out every Tuesday. Uh, as I mentioned, the first episode is already out now, and you can listen to it on Apple or Spotify. We will definitely check that out. Jessica, thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for having me. That is Jessica Schnack, a Métis Canadian writer, uh, talking about this new project and podcast called The Apocrypha Chronicles. You should check it out. I was thinking about that. They, they're taking a look at the modern day. They're looking like today from 150 years in the future, what would be important and what would you think would fall by the wayside? I mean, think back 150 years ago, what a huge impact that is. What do we study from 150 years ago? It's a great project. This is Mornings with Simi. The big news today is going to have a lot to do with long-term care homes in our province, that whole system, and how we have been looking after those vulnerable residents during the COVID-19 pandemic. We touched on this earlier with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer, as well. We are going to get the results of a third-party report that looked into this situation that is coming up today. Now, here's the thing about this report. It wasn't widely publicized. It wasn't really made known out there. The provincial government says they always planned to release it, but it wasn't really announced or on the schedule until the media started asking questions about it last week. For more on this, we are joined now by Terry Lake, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Simi. Now, did your group participate in this third-party report? Yes, we did. Uh, We were notified uh, towards the end of July that it would be coming, and then in August, uh, members of our organization uh, were interviewed about the pandemic, the impacts, uh, you know, what, what went right, what went wrong, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, we've been asking about this particular report for some time now and understood it was in a draft that we would get to see before it was released. And, uh, you know, we haven't had that opportunity. What were some of the points that you wanted to make sure got through to the government on this? Well, we did our own independent review as well, which you may recall we released uh, back in November mm-hmm. and because we wanted to make sure that, you know, whatever happened in the first wave, we recognized what needed to be improved for the first wave. And other operators did too. Deborah Helpman, for instance, at Langley Lodge, uh, where there was a significant outbreak, they wrote their own report. Again, they shared it widely because our goal has always been to spread the information, to learn from each other. Uh, but some of the major weaknesses that we've identified uh, at that point were the, uh, you know, the sort of gaping holes in the screening process as the virus was making its way inadvertently through uh, workers that did not know they were ill. They were asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, and we didn't have the level of uh, scrutiny on the screening process in order to pick that up. And by that, I mean the the use of rapid tests, which would have been an extra layer of protection. So that's one thing that we called for in our report was uh, was the use of rapid tests uh, for screening. Um, a lot of the things that I suspect uh, are in the report have been implemented, as as it was in our report. We, we saw things that, that did get implemented, uh, things like looking at the Health Career Access Program to increase the number of people available to work in long-term care, uh, the continuation of the single-site order and the wage leveling, uh, for instance. So uh, I suspect this report will will reflect some of those things as well. Right. So were there, you you talked about the screening, the the holes you said that have been in the system. Do you feel like those have been addressed or do we still have a lot of work to do? No, they haven't been addressed. We have a small pilot going on in Vancouver Coastal using these rapid tests and we know from really anecdotal evidence at this point, that they have been able to pick up asymptomatic carriers that could have been the source of more infections. 
Uh, we know that they're being used in other jurisdictions far more than they're being used here. We know we have over a million of them sitting in boxes that could be utilized tomorrow. So we wrote a letter to um, uh, Minister Dix on Friday saying, if you're not going to use them, please let us know where they are. We'll come and pick them up and, and start using them uh, where operators feel comfortable doing that. Because even with the vaccine rollouts, I mean, they'll be up to, say, 20% of workers who don't get vaccinated. And we think uh, these tests would be most appropriate for screening those people who are not vaccinated working in long-term care. So you're saying, listen, if you don't want them, we'll take them because we can find a use for them. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the barriers we keep hearing about is how complex they are, how resource intensive they are. But the pilot is showing that that's not the case. Uh, Use in Nova Scotia, where they actually train volunteers in a few minutes to administer these, uh, shows that's not the case. The approval of the nasal swab rather than the nasal pharyngeal swab uh, makes it a lot easier. And, um, you know, you don't have to test everybody, just those people who are unvaccinated. So we really feel the arguments that have been put up uh, week after week uh, have melted away and uh, that we should be using these. So you, your group participated in this Ernst & Young report that is coming out. What have you heard about other groups? And the, there must have been chatter in the community about this. Well, it kind of went dark, to be honest. Uh, Safe Care BC is an organization that looks after the health and safety of workers in the contracted continuing care sector. And so we, you know, we interact with them on a regular basis. I sit on their board. And again, it was it was really uh, quiet. No one, we were getting no feedback from the government uh, on this report. Uh, you know, the, the people at the Ministry of Health have worked very closely with uh, all of the organizations in long-term care. We meet every week, uh, and they are, for the most part, extremely good at uh, passing on information and listening to our concerns. Uh, but on this particular one, we were really just hitting a brick wall, much like with the rapid test um, and the essential visitor guide. It, it was it was kind of radio silence for a long time, or we were told that, you know, things were still being done. It wasn't quite ready yet. Um, but uh, I was hoping maybe I would get a copy, an embargoed copy over the weekend, but unfortunately not. So when it really? comes out today, I'll see it uh, when everyone else does. So nobody, so your group, nobody got like an advanced copy of this, even though they've had the report for a few weeks now. No. And as I say, we, we were under the impression it was still draft. There was still some work to do on it. And, you know, we were hoping that we would see it when they were finished uh, looking at the draft give us an opportunity to review it before making it final. But um, again, that's just not happened. All right. So what do you hope to hear in this report today then, Terry? Well, you know, I I want to see if there's anything in that report that, uh, you know, we have been pointing out that have not been implemented. That that would be uh, very telling, I think, if if we see anything like that in the report. Um, But from what I heard from the minister on Friday, um, I suspect it will reinforce a lot of the things that uh, the health ministry has done, whether it's around the health career access program or, you know, continuing on with wage leveling. Um, it doesn't sound like it's super critical of, uh, of the ministry. So, um, uh, but uh, you, you never know. It'll, the devil will be in the details and there may be some things in that report that we could have done that uh, would have been helpful, but without seeing it, it's hard to know. Well, we'll find out later today. Terry, thank you.
Thank you, Simi. Terry Lake is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, getting a preview of that Ernst & Young report looking into the long-term care home industry in BC and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. So BC Care Providers participated in that discussion, right? They were consulted as part of this report, as many stakeholders were in the community, but no advanced copy and they don't have an idea of what is in it and they would like to. So when it comes out today, uh, they, along with everybody else, will be reading that report for the first time and we'll have those details for you right here. This is Mornings with Simi. Over the weekend, you probably heard about the death of Larry King. He died at the age of 87. Now, I knew him primarily from watching him on CNN, right? He hosted his show on CNN for something like 25 years. That's the era that I remember most about him. But he had a very long career in the industry. Let's talk more about that remarkable legacy. Joining us now is music publicist and pop pop culture commentator Eric Alper. Good morning, Eric. Eric calling in from Toronto. How's that for my Larry King impression? At, uh, Not bad. In Not bad. You might have to uh, remind me because I think there's young people today who probably don't realize what a big deal he was. He was the biggest. I mean, not only did he interview the the greatest and biggest celebrities on the planet, but also the biggest politicians, the biggest um, social media people. I mean, you know, with a with a six decade career predating social media there was one program where every single person who needed to promote something wanted to go and that was larry king because not only was he you know kind of a little bit recognized for throwing softball questions and and making it a little bit easier for people to um you know to get through an interview he famously said that he didn't want to do a lot of research he wanted to have conversations with people and you know you've been in the business long enough sometimes the best conversations with your guests happen off air and you're like oh this is what would make this so compelling and that's exactly what people got five nights a week on the fledging at the time CNN station that, you know, didn't have a lot of competition for programming. I think that's so true because today we kind of take for granted these tell-all, bear-all interviews or, you know, people posting online their deepest thoughts and feelings and all of that. But back when he started doing it, it was quite revolutionary. Yeah, and people wanted to go on his program precisely because it wasn't hard-hitting. Now, people may not, you know, remember, but CNN wasn't the, the, you know, 24-hour day, you know, in-your-face political, um, you know, network. I mean, Fox wasn't even around back then. But CNN um, had Larry King, who was already doing interviews on his radio show broadcast nationally and around the world for years and years and years. And so it was kind of light programming for people who wanted to catch their, their favorite celebrities. You know, growing up, I watched him. And then I was watching somebody, I don't know if you guys remember it on, on the West Coast, but Brian Line, uh, Brian Linehan of course, yeah. on City TV, and he would do research. He would tell somebody about a cab ride that they took in 1984 that even the interviewee had no recollection about that changed their life. Larry King wasn't about that. He was a celebrity onto itself who wanted to make sure that his guests had a good time. And it was like 
two people, you know, talking around the water cooler back in the day. You know, but sometimes that backfired, right? I was thinking about the the Jerry Seinfeld interview that was really yeah. being talked about over the weekend when he didn't really know whether Seinfeld had been canceled or whether he had walked away from the show. And there was that kind of faux outrage from Jerry Seinfeld on the show. Yeah, you know, I, and we're all going to have those, you know, you, you, you talk to enough people and things slip your mind. And I mean, quite frankly, you know, Larry King's show was at the same time as Seinfeld. So, you know, I think he can be a little bit forgiven for, for, for you know, not realizing that the show was off. But yeah, you know, there there are certain flood moments where um, where that happens. But I think that people kind of pride, you know, I think he kind of prided himself on not being too inside baseball yeah. a little bit. You know, you didn't have to know a lot about the interview subject in order because I, you know, as much as I saw that over the weekend, there were probably 12 million people in America who didn't realize that science yeah. was off the air because they kept seeing it on every That's single so station. So yeah. I, I kind of get that. And, you know, he's kind of like the, uh, you know, your favorite grandfather who, you know, kind of loses his mind for a couple of moments, but then gets right back into things. You know, I also wondered, Eric, if the reason why he was so significant is because it was really the first crossing of politics into celebrity, because I remember that 1992 presidential election where he had on like Ross Perot continually, and he had Bill Clinton on, and all of a sudden you had politicians doing these deep interviews. Yeah, you, you know, there was one specific uh, interview where Al Gore and Ross Perot were arguing the NAFTA agreement back in the day before it was actually solidified. Um, and the poll said that, you know, people knew more about NAFTA during that one hour program than any other thing that the politicians, um, both them and others, have said. He treated politicians like celebrities. He saw celebrity as a much different way of how, say, we're thinking about it today with social media and the fact that you can be 16 years old and dance and lip sync and have right. a lot of followers makes you a celebrity. He saw Vladimir Putin as a celebrity, but not in the way that, you know, like a Paris Hilton. He saw it as a very famous person, and that's what he needed to, to have on his program. Everybody wanted to be on Larry King because not only did he have a huge audience in a world of 15 channels instead of 700 that we have now, but Larry King was a celebrity onto itself. I mean, the guy married 147 times, you know, um, sometimes to the same woman twice. You know, he hung out at the best restaurants in L.A. He was a scenester. Yeah. He was the person that everybody wanted to do and do his program, even if, you know, in the case of Marlon Brando, when his, you know, hotly tipped autobiography came out, he did one interview, and that was on Larry King. That's amazing, right? End of an era. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Yes, that is Eric Albert, music publicist and pop culture commentator, talking about Larry King passing away at the age of 87. And it really, if you're wondering why such a big deal is being made, that's why. It was the end of an era. Uh, Truly it was. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of COVID-19 news coming your way today here in BC. We expect to hear about that Ernst & Young report that looked into long-term care homes in the pandemic in this province. 
We are getting an update on the numbers of COVID-19 cases in provinces like Ontario, Quebec. Quebec has seen a decline. I think it was a little over 1,400 cases that they reported for the last 24 hours. Of course, they've had a curfew in place there for a couple of weeks now too. But all of this is against the backdrop. You may feel like, oh, this news just goes on forever and ever. Well, today actually is the one-year anniversary of the first COVID-19 case that was diagnosed officially in Canada. The patient was a man in his 50s who had traveled from China and he was treated at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. So let's talk about that and take a look back at what happened. Joining us now is Global News Toronto journalist Travis Dunraj. Good morning, Travis. Good morning to you. So this was quite an event a year ago. I don't know if we ever figured out like, you know, what was going to happen to us as a result of this. But can you take us back to that particular case? Listen, I was at the gym working out uh, and I got a, a call on my cell phone from one of my contacts at the legislature here who gave me a tip and said the, the health minister, Christine Elliott, in Ontario is going to have a news conference uh, in a little while. And I said, okay, what is, what is this about? They said, um, we have a presumptive case of COVID. Uh, at that time, actually, it wasn't even COVID-19. It wasn't even named yet, of coronavirus. Uh, it's a man in his 50s who had just traveled from Wuhan, China, back to Toronto. He's now isolated at Sunnybrook Hospital. You know, I confirmed that information. I tweeted it out and then went back to working out because, you know, at that point in time, yes, we were seeing the images from afar, but I don't think anybody ever fathomed that we would be in this for a year, uh, that our lives would change this much. And, you know, that was the start of this tsunami that was COVID-19. Right, because this is also the one-year anniversary right around now of when the lockdown started in Wuhan, China. And mm-hmm. I think, don't you feel like, Travis, back then, it it almost felt like, well, that's, that's all happening way far away, right? Like, yeah, way over totally. there. Totally. Uh, you know, and, and we saw, we kind of slowly saw it creep uh, from, from Asia over to Europe, and then it was here. But again, you know, when we had one case here, um, we, I don't think people thought m- much of it. And, you know, that was around the same time uh, that the premier here in Ontario, Doug Ford, told folks to go away on spring break. Um, and, and that really is what led to a lot of the cases that we saw at the end of, end of March and April. Uh, and, and, you know, there's so much that has happened. It's kind of been a blur. And, uh, you know, I, I did a story, which is up on the website, that kind of looks back at the timeline of, of how things went. And you'll remember, you know, there were deaths that were mounting in April in long-term care here in Ontario. We had to bring the military in to deal with some of the seven of the hardest hit homes. Uh, and, you know, there was just, uh, there was confusion a, a lot of the time when it came to the lockdown, but the lockdown, the, the first one here in Ontario, it really, it really worked. And by the summer, the case numbers were dipping down before the second wave. Right, before the second wave then. Mm -hmm. So given that, you know, you had your sources reach out to you and tell you about that first case, did that give you the idea that back then, you know, health officials, everybody was kind of on alert for this mysterious virus? Well, they certainly were watching what was happening internationally, and I think that there was concern. Uh, However, I don't know necessarily if there was uh, a plan in terms of what they were going to do with the economy, what how lockdowns would look. Uh, you know, I remember 
there was a clip with the, the premier the next day on, uh, I think it was the 26th of January, uh, with him saying, listen, I'm just going to take the advice from the, the, the health table and the medical experts and, and, and go from there. But there was, at the beginning at least, uh, you know, uh, definitely the communication was, let's not panic everyone. Let's tell folks to go away. Uh, and then that messaging drastically shifted once they realized, okay, you know, we're going to have to shut down the economy. This is this is very serious and it's spreading like wildfire. Man, for people who don't know then, Travis, what's it like in Ontario right now? Well, you know, the case numbers are, are lower than what they were a couple of weeks ago, but there is still a lot of concern, particularly when it comes to these variants. We are seeing increasing numbers of the UK variant, uh, and there's a lot of concern about that because we know that it's 56% more transmissible. Uh, and, you know, there are studies right now going on as to whether or not this uh, variant or some of the different variants are, are are more deadly. So I think that is a big concern right now as well. There are issues, obviously, right across the country with the vaccine rollout because, you know, we're not getting uh, as much Pfizer vaccine as we had hoped, zero this week uh, in terms of uh, new doses. So the, there's growing concern about that, but right. there is this beacon of hope on the horizon that folks are getting vaccinated, whether or not that's with Moderna or Pfizer, and that more vaccine will be coming eventually, and we slowly will be able to get out of this. Eventually and hopefully. All big words mm-hmm. there. Travis, exactly. thank you so much for your time. No problem. That's Travis Dunraj, a Global News Toronto journalist. That story that he talked about, the timeline of the arrival of COVID-19 in Canada can be found at globalnews.ca if you'd like to read more about it. Quick update for us here in Metro Vancouver. The snowfall warning has now ended. I know, if you're like me, you probably waited all weekend to see, is that snowstorm coming? Is this going to happen? What's going on? It did not. So there's no more snowfall warning in effect, but we are expecting just showers today. A few wet flurries perhaps over higher terrain. Temperature staying at about two degrees today. And that's really it for the rest of the week, actually. I mean, there's the potential for wet snow, uh, but it does sound like we hopefully dodged that snowstorm that we thought we were going to get. And right now we're just looking at rain. So once again, the snowfall warning has ended for Metro Vancouver. Just cold rain in store for us. Oh, what joy. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we have a very special birthday that we want to highlight. We don't do this very often, but you'll understand why we are doing this one for sure. We wanted to say happy birthday to Dorsey Patterson, who turns 108 years old today. Dorsey is amazing. So here's why we wanted to make sure we did this. Dorsey's a founding member of the Langley Hospice Society. She's received the Governor General's Award for her volunteerism and community involvement. She has received the Women of Excellence Award from the International Women's Day Committee. Actually, there's so many awards that Dorsey has been given for her involvement in local groups and volunteer groups and community groups that we couldn't possibly have the time to list them all here. Uh, Her teaching career began when she was a member of the local PTA and saw a posting to teach hairdressing at Van Tech. That was quite a while ago. We found this also great profile of her that was done by the Cloverdale Reporter newspaper. This was back in 2013 when she turned 
100. And back then, she was still fishing. At that point, she at, at the age of 100, she was still driving. She was doing her own housework. She was volunteering twice a month at Langley Hospice. She was a lady lion for decades, did the greeting cards for the Langley Lions Club. I mean, she has been very active. So she did a lot of teaching over the years at Van Tech. And she has just never stopped going, going, going. And she also was still fishing. Yeah, she was still fishing at least a couple of years ago uh, when they did this profile on her. So we wanted to say happy 108th birthday to Dorsey Patterson. Anybody out there who knows her or wants to share a great story about her, hey, let me know, simmy at cknw.com. And you know what? We like to do that every once in a while. If you have an extraordinary person that you want to say happy birthday to, I mean, come on, 108, if that doesn't deserve a shout out, I don't know what does. You can always pass it along to me so we can make that something special happen.